The Wild Dunedin podcast is all about the wildlife that lives around Dunedin. But for some animals, Dunedin is just one of their homes. Nature knows no boundaries and has no labels. The journeys that these animals take link Dunedin, this small and beautiful city on the South Island of New Zealand, to places all around the world. Wild. It's wild. Wild. It's really wild. 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 So wild. The Wild Dunedin Podcast. Kia ora. Claire. Jamie. This is the Wild Dunedin Podcast, Episode 5. So today's episode is a little bit different. Today we bring you three short stories where we explore crazy journeys that some of the wildlife around Dunedin undertake as part of their lives. Three animals. Three passionate people. Three ridiculous stories. It's just their flying, the way they fly and, and gliding so effortlessly. I, I never get tired of seeing them fly and, and seeing the colony grow over, over the time that I've been there has been really amazing. Journey 1. The Royal Tour. Dunedin is home to the only mainland colony of albatross in the world. The Northern Royal Albatross, called Tairoa Head on the end of the Otago Peninsula home. Well, at least for some part of their lives. And while they're there, they're under the protection of Department of Conservation Rangers, like Sharon Brony, who has worked with the albatross for about 20 years. But the thing is, even though we're kind of most familiar with them being on the heads, nesting and rearing their chick, actually, the life of an albatross is all about the ocean. Chicks are born and reared on the head by their parents, but once they get big and old enough, they fledge from the headland, launching themselves off into the wind. They will then live on the ocean for five years. Research showed that they will spend a bit of time, maybe up to six weeks, uh, feeding off the coast of New Zealand. They'll head up the coast and then... At some point, they decide just to go, and they'll go quite fast and not really stop, maybe a 1,000 kilometres a day and head over to the coast of Chile. And they don't even go in a straight line. (laughs) They're zigzagging because that's the type of flight they need to do. They will rest on the ocean. Um, They'll rest for up up to several hours at a time. But no, they don't land. And we notice it when the five-year-olds come back, their legs are quite wobbly. They haven't touched ground for over four years and uh, they have a wee bit of a hard time getting used to their legs again. So these wobbly-legged youngsters essentially return to their heads to flirt. And 
then this flirting process can go on for three years. So you kind of have two different groups of albatross that will be at Tairo ahead. You'll have the youngsters flirting with each other, and you'll have those albatross who have pair bonded, who have hooked up and are ready to settle down and have a family. The non-breeders, they, they'll spend up to three or more, even more sometimes summers um, in big groups and then slowly pairing off. It's a quite a complicated mate selection process and they have to spend a long time together raising a chick because it takes a long time to raise a chick and they usually stay together so they don't have to select a mate again because that takes a long time. Yeah, a lot of displaying and hanging around and then they'll go away for the winter and then eventually they'll be ready to build a nest and, and the female will lie an egg and that's that's their life on the headland. It's only maybe 15% of their life is on, actually on the headland. In the winter, between their time being on Tairoa Head, they will migrate to the waters of South America. And they feed off the Chilean coast in the Humboldt Current and the Patagonian Shelf off Argentina. And they actually circle the globe. They go right around the Southern Ocean, following the prevailing westerly winds that help them fly. And they're super efficient flyers. They use the wind and waves to power themselves in a way that is amazingly energy efficient. When they're gliding, those use the same amount of energy that it takes them to sit down. So they just lock their wings into position and go on the winds that come off the ocean swells. Sort of like a, a bit like a yacht tacking and just yeah, effortlessly almost. They'll zoom down into the swell and turn to get that lift to gain height and then they'll go down really fast to do the next one and and it just repeats. The ligaments at the joints lock into place. So compared to the likes of geese, they, they have really small pectoral muscles because they're just not using them to flap. In fact, they, although we do see them flapping when they come around the headland a bit if the wind's not enough. So using their locked wings, these soaring techniques and predictable weather systems Albatross cover huge distances with very little energy expenditure. And this is helpful too when they're raising a chick on the headland. So when they do settle down, lay an egg, hatch a chick, both parents work to provide food for this rapidly growing chick. And some of the foraging trips they go on are incredible. We do know one bird who spent two weeks on a foraging trip well, it had a, a chick, probably about a month old chick, and it flew 13,000 kilometres in that time in the waters around New Zealand from down towards the sub-Antarctic. And they head over, some will head over to the Chatham Islands and some will head up north towards the North Island. But their amazing adaptation to gliding flight does have its disadvantage. It makes them very dependent on wind and waves. It's a problem if they, uh, when they fledge and they land in the harbour because there isn't the swell and, and the wind breezes to get them up off that flat, sheltered water. 
Okay, so the mm. chicks are in trouble when that happens? Yes, we go rescue them, bring them back to the headland and give them another chance to go properly. <laughs> <laughs> Try somewhere else, guys. <laughs> <laughs> just wait for the southerly to come through here. <laughs> That'll be fine. And this is just one of Sharon's roles as a ranger to help this albatross colony. Well, at this time of year, I, I get there and do a round of the colony to make sure that every all the chicks are okay, check on any parents who might be in, and then you know, a lot of note-keeping is done, and I do a lot of the trapping, so we want to, because we know predation can be a problem, we want to keep the predator numbers down as low as we can. There would be a lot of chicks that didn't get through uh, if we weren't doing what we're doing. And actually, the work of a dock ranger at the Albatross Colony has now extended into the realm of YouTube. These albatross physically connect Tairoa Head to the South American waters and the whole expanse of the Southern Ocean. But actually, they have also connected Dunedin to every known country in the world. Because in January 2016, Doc decided to set up Royal Cam, a live stream YouTube channel with a camera pointed at an albatross nest. And it has been just a little bit of a success. 2.4 million web views on, on YouTube currently. Over 2.4 million. Just wildly exceeded all expectations, even in the first year. 212 countries. But some of those might be states that aren't recognised. <laughs> so it's more more than 195 countries that are recognised. People have come to see the albatross from seeing it on the on the webcam. There was a, a woman from Italy just last week who came to see the albatross that she had seen on on the royal cam. Oh man, and this is awesome! Like I remember seeing an albatross alongside the boat and we were we were cracking on probably like I don't know 20 knots really moving and seeing this albatross just glide effortly next to us and it slowly gently lifts its just just slightly lifts its wing and peels off off to the right it was incredible you know I can see how how these animals are just amazing and grab people and they and they've, they have they've been a massive hit with tourists and you know it, it's really the albatrosses that have nailed Dunedin as the wildlife capital of New Zealand and millions of people watching online the internet has connected this tiny headland with people all around the world and it's stimulated so much interest in these albatross yeah, they're totally majestic birds. There's no two ways around that. I mean, full marks to evolution. They're just perfectly designed for this super energy-efficient flying technique. It means they can cover thousands of kilometers around the Southern Ocean. But they're not my favorite journey bird. I mean, they get all the attention. Like when the first albatross returns to breed here in Dunedin, the bells are rung in the city. It's front page news of the Otago Daily Times. I mean, they even have their own YouTube channel. My favorite bird is a bit more unassuming. It's a small bird, about the size of a seagull, kind of sandy colored, and pretty hard to spot actually. We were going out to count the birds at Aramoana 
and I look out over the salt marsh at Aramoana and there's nothing much there. There's a few black-back gulls, black swans, and they said, but there's about 500 bar-tailed godwits out there. Where? Where? And there's just a smudge of fawn in the, on the sandbank, and that smudge turned out to be these amazing birds. Journey 2. Oh my Godward. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? Oh, well, I'm Mary Thompson, and I'm here, I think, as regional representative of Birds New Zealand, but also as a keen bird watcher, which I've been doing for sort of seriously for 30 years, I guess. Dunedin is a fantastic place to view birds. The bar-tailed godwit. You can find them throughout New Zealand, and there are records showing that they have been around for a while. Not a lot of fossils, because their bones are very thin, but remains have been found in Maori middens. And so we can't for certain say that yes, they've always been doing it, but one assumes they have for hundreds of thousands of years, probably two million at least. The it here is the incredible journey. These birds carry out the most amazing journey. They live in Dunedin for the summer. They're feeding up, ready to fly back to Alaska and they fly back via the Yellow Sea, which is between China and North Korea. And there they refuel en route. They build their nests in Alaska, feed their young up there on insects, because in the summer in the tundra, there's thousands and thousands of insects. And then when that's all over, they fly straight back to Dunedin. And this is the most incredible journey, this return journey from Alaska to Dunedin, because this is the longest non-stop migration in the world. Of any land bird, yes. So although these birds live on the edge of the sea, they're not seabirds, they're land birds, which means they can't float on the sea, they would just drown. So when they're flying from Alaska straight back across the Pacific Ocean to New Zealand, they fly non-stop, flapping all the way. The first time we knew they didn't stop was a bird that was actually tagged in New Zealand, and we watched it fly to the Yellow Sea, stay there two months, fly to Alaska, stay there three months to breed and then fly home. They do it so that they have food all year round. They can't stay in the northern hemisphere in the winter because it's frozen solid, but they come here and it's abundant food in the summer, our summer. But to do all that, they have to take the cost of flying back and forth, back and forth, year after year. Alaska to Dunedin. 
11,000 kilometers in seven to eight days, which is about 200 hours traveling at 60 kilometers per hour. Non-stop. They can't stop. They can't rest. They don't eat. They just keep flapping. Yes, so they don't do the gliding like the albatross does because their wings-to-body ratio are not designed for gliding. They're designed for flying. So they won't do much gliding at all. So it's all, all muscle power and hardly any wind power. So that must be really, as you say, energetically expensive. So they're flapping all the time. When they arrive back to Dunedin, are they just worn out? Are they exhausted? I think they are, but I've never seen it. Some people have, and they 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 tend to just crash down because they don't know how to walk on their legs after having been flying for seven days nonstop, and they rest start feeding, they molt into new feathers, build up their body again because they've got to build up their muscle protein again because that's been worn out as well. A method often used to identify birds is banding. And this is where you put a different arrangement of coloured bands around the leg of the bird. So it helps you to identify individual birds. Now, this banding has helped people to realise that the Dunedin population of Godwits is really a Dunedin population. These birds don't take the easy route of popping back to whatever estuary is closest in New Zealand. After flying all the way down, non-stop from Alaska, they keep on going all the way home to Dunedin. And they return year on year. So they arrive here about the middle of September and you'll see them from all through October, November, December, January, February and they start leaving in March. In the summer we would have about 1,200 because we count them every year so we know almost exactly how many there are unless they're hiding somewhere. And in the winter, only about 100 to 150 remain over the winter. And we think they're the young birds that don't go back to Alaska to breed. They do come year on year. Godwits are long-lived birds, so we would expect an individual bird could make the journey from Alaska to New Zealand and back again 20 times in their lifetime. And we know for sure that some of our birds in our Dunedin estuaries have been doing it for 12 years because we've banded them and we've seen them and can identify the individual birds. So they come back to Dunedin. Where can you find them? Yes, so they're found in the estuaries, the Aramoana, Blueskin Bay, Hooper's Inlet, where there's a tidal change because they feed in the intertidal zone so they live in those estuaries. Mary told me that about 70,000 godwits return to New Zealand each year so our Dunedin group are just a small portion of this but overall how are the godwits doing? 
all the wading birds that use what's called the East Asian Pacific Flyway, which goes via the Yellow Sea, are all declining at varying rates. And the bar-tailed godwitch, which is the one we have, is declining the least probably at about 1% per year. So in the last 10 years or so, the population as a whole has declined about 10%. And that's at the critical stage because these are adult birds that are disappearing. It's very hard to reverse once the decline starts. So how is our end of the flyway? Where is the problem? In New Zealand, we think that our estuaries are doing all right and it's not their summer feeding up that's causing the problem and it doesn't seem to be a breeding problem. So the problem has been traced really to the stopover refuelling site in the Yellow Sea because there's been a huge amount of reclamation take place in the Yellow Sea for building and ports and pollution of the intertidal zone. So the feeding areas have really been reduced quite dramatically in the last probably 30 years. And that's really a key point of their whole trip, is being able to top up again en route. And so the New Zealand government with DOC and with um, the Miranda Naturalist Trust who look after the waders in the North Island have sent delegations over to China and North Korea and discussed with their high-level officials really the importance of the Yellow Sea for these amazing birds, not just our godwits but knots and curlews and sandpipers, all the, all these so-called shorebirds or wading birds. And really their governments have got on board with this and have really committed to maintaining nature reserves and areas where these birds can feed up en route, which is really exciting that we know that it's going to happen so our birds will still be coming back. So individually we can also help because the godwits roost in groups at high tide and it's very tempting to go up to them and make them fly because they just look so lovely when they're flying. But they've been, they're asleep and digesting their food and resting, getting ready to fly 10,000 kilometres. So the best thing you can do is just look at them from a distance and let them peacefully rest. Keep your dog from spooking them up. It's an important thing we can do. How cool is this? That one of the only government interactions between New Zealand and North Korea is is this little bird. It's kind of teaching us how to kind of all get along and work together. And that this tiny little bird takes this inspirational journey over 11,000 k's from the Yukon all the way back to New Zealand. I just love this story. The Godwits are my favourite bird now. I remember coming back and telling my housemate about them, and he was talking about the Arctic Turns, they go a lot further. But I looked it up, and Jamie, 
they're cheaters. They're like resting, eating some food. Godwits don't stop. It's just flapping, flapping, nonstop. And I really love as well that for a very long time, they knew that the Godwits were showing up in these different places because they had the banding and people were spotting them, but they didn't know how long it was taking them until they did that tracking and satellite tagging in 2007. And so there was this mystery. And that's been solved now for the Godwits, but there are other journeys that are mysterious. And that leads to our next journey. So eels are not built for um, kind of the 100 meter dash. They're more your marathon swimmers. Journey three, a swim into the unknown. Uh, yeah, my name's Don Jellyman. I'm a freshwater fisheries scientist. I've worked for Niwa uh, for uh, quite a number of years. I'm currently um, semi-retired, although I still continue to do some research on eels. Niwa is the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. Don has been studying eels for nearly 50 years. 49 to be precise. He knows a hell of a lot about eels. So to start, what eels are there in New Zealand? There are two main species. The third species we can pretty much ignore because it's only found on the top of the North Island and we're not sure whether it's a regular arrival in New Zealand waters. The other two species, there's the short eel, and we share that species with parts of the Pacific, with Fiji, New Caledonia, the uh, eastern seaboard of Australia and Tasmania. But the other species we have here, the long eel, is the one that's endemic and found only in New Zealand and, uh, and the Chatham Islands. Differences between long and short eels? Well, the length of the fin. Also, the size of the eels, so the short fins are smaller. Adult females, which are bigger than the males, can grow to one meter in the short fin eels. And for long fin eels, they can get up to as long as two meters. Short fin eels also mature earlier and have shorter lifespans. Now, these are freshwater eels, so they live out most of their lives in the lakes, rivers and wetlands of New Zealand but they have a really interesting part to their life cycle, an evolutionary remnant. You see, all eels originated in the tropics. It's thought that they originated around Indonesia and spread out across the world from there. We recognise 19 species and subspecies of freshwater eel, and uh, most of those are what we call tropical eels. So our ones are different, they're temperate eels, so they're found further away from the equator. So we believe that the sort of eels originated in the tropics, probably around the Indonesian area, which is where we find most of the different species. So even though um, freshwater eels are basically a marine species that adapted and invaded freshwater, they all um, at some stage will have to go back to the sea to spawn. So even though they are freshwater species, they have this vital part of their life cycle, 
where once they have matured, they undergo this change in their bodies and physiologies. They leave the rivers and lakes they have called home, and they go to the ocean, where they will spawn just once, producing millions of eggs, and then they will die. For a very long time, where different eel species went to spawn on this final journey of their lives was a complete mystery. And of all of the eel species worldwide, the spawning grounds of only four are known with certainty today. It is still pretty mysterious. But better technology has helped to some extent. The, the classical way of actually finding out where eels spawn is to go to sea and tow very large nets for large distances and find progressively smaller and smaller larvae. Now, it's a very expensive exercise to do these days. And we have found uh, a few of our larvae of our short-finned eel, but never found any of the long-finned eel. So one of the things I did with a Japanese colleague a number of years ago, we put satellite tracking tags on some of our large female eels when they were leaving for sea. And the results of that indicated that the likely spawning area is to the um, east of New Caledonia, between what we call the, the South Fiji Basin, between there and Fiji. So for the long fins, we think they're going to this area near Fiji and New Caledonia. For the short fin eels, we think maybe it's near Samoa. They seem to be less sexually developed when they leave New Zealand compared to the long fins, and this suggests that their spawning grounds are further away. But these are crazy distances. And for a long time, people just couldn't accept that the temperate eels could swim all the way to the tropics. They thought, it's just not possible. They're not eating in the ocean. How could they swim that far without food? Some fascinating studies have been done in Holland where they put migrating eels into large swimming tubes and they just swam them continuously for about six months of the year, which was equivalent to swimming about five and a half thousand kilometers. And at the end of that period, they found that they'd still had well over 50%, and it might have been 60 or 70% in some instances, of their energy still available. Now, prior to that, people had said that we don't think it's physically possible for an eel to swim 5,000 or 6,000 kilometres on an empty stomach. You know, it just it can't work. But in fact, it can, and it turns out that that sort of sinuous swimming action is very, very efficient. A bird-swimming fish, like a trout, for instance, do a, a rapid tail beat. Eels don't. They have a, a slow, sinuous undulation. and They're not swinging their head from, from side to side, so they don't waste a lot of energy thrashing around. They just have that, when they're in the open ocean, that sort of rhythmic, continuous undulation, which turns out to be the best shape and the best style of swimming for long distance. Uh, in those experiments, they say they swam them continuously for six months and, uh, and they were still cranking at the end. Absolutely amazing animals. Now, nobody has actually ever witnessed eels spawn in the ocean. So what happens at these deep sea trenches near the tropics, scientists can only speculate from what they have seen in the lab. 
after the spawning and when the eggs hatch, the eel larvae then make their way back to New Zealand. The eggs will hatch, rise to the surface, hatch into this strange little larvae called a leptocephalus, which really just means leaf shapes. So it's, it's like a very small leaf. It's capable of swimming, although mainly it's sort of wafted on uh, surface currents. And over a period of sort of six to eight months, those larvae will um, swim and be transported back to offshore New Zealand. Then they go through this interesting metamorphosis where they shrink slightly in length, but certainly in body depth, and turn into a miniature eel. At this stage, they're quite transparent, and we call that stage the glass eel, and that's the stage when they uh, migrate into fresh water. Wait for a week or two while they sort of acclimatise to fresh water, and then migrate upstream. And now, when they do that, they can form very, very large shoals, and um, there are reports of continuous migrations for three and four days in places like the Lower Waikato River. So they're now in fresh water, they're now um, starting to darken up, acclimatised to fresh water, feeding, and then each summer there's a successive wave of movement as they migrate further and further upstream. And at some stage they'll find uh, um, habitat where they'll sort of settle down and then continue to sort of live there throughout the rest of their freshwater life. So they're often quite territorial. Short fin eels tend to be more coastal and living in lowland lakes and things like that, whereas the longfin is the species that migrates well inland into our large um, headwater lakes. So the longfin eels will head all the way inland, and those shortfin eels will stay closer to the coast. So it's the shortfin eels that we would find in areas around Dunedin, such as Tomahawk Lagoon and the Sinclair Wetlands. And there... They will eat, and they will grow, and they will mature. And one day, they will be ready. Their bodies will transform. They will turn silver. Their eyes and fins will get bigger. Their heads will get more streamlined. And they will head to the ocean for that last long journey. Albatross that fly all around the Southern Ocean. Godwits that do this yearly crazy journey up and down to the Yukon Delta. 11,000 Ks, like a week of continuously flapping their little tiny wings. And eels that, like, swim for six months to these deep trenches in the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) Nobody knows. I mean, this is just a taster of the incredible journeys that wildlife from Dunedin are taking and they connect Dunedin to places all around the world. Yeah, this is this is the world wide web of, of albatross and, and eels and all these amazing animals that connect us with our place in the globe. 
It's the world wide web of wild Dunedin wildlife. And it's awesome. This has been episode five of the Wild Dunedin podcast, produced by Claire Kincannon and Jamie McCauley. Massive thank you to the Wild Dunedin Festival of Nature and Otago Museum, and also to Otago Access Radio, or FM, for all their help in putting these podcasts together. Thank you to our guests this episode, Sharon Brony, Mary Thompson, and Don Jellyman. Many thanks to Molly Devine and Paul Corbett, responsible for the fantastic music and intro that you heard at the start of this episode. And as ever, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for rating and reviewing. Kakiteano. ano.